When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 200 of the podcast that is Sweeping America, the Aratora Sports Podcast. All right. Uh, it's episode 200, the two double zero. I wanted to do something special, but here's the bottom line. There is so much going on. I'm not going to bring in any special guests. You get me because there is so much going on in the world of sports. This is one of my favorite times of year as the sports kind of overlap, and we're really talking both, and we're going to hit on both today. I'm actually going to open with college basketball. I thought we were done talking about James Wiseman at least for one episode, but right before I got set to record, he was suspended for 12 games. Technically 11 because he served one game of that suspension, so he is now out basically two months. He's, he won't be able to play again until January 12th. We'll talk about that, why it was always dumb for Memphis to fight the NCAA. Memphis, of course, being punished for that today. They will appeal, but I don't think it's going to end up working out well. I'm going to talk about Kentucky, another disappointing effort in their game against Utah Valley they did win this one the last time we spoke they were coming off a loss to Evansville but it's not good I have some thoughts that are going to make Kentucky fans mad but also happy because I think that while there are reasons for frustration there are also reasons for optimism the last basketball thing didn't think I would have to get it I don't know how this was not a topic that was on my radar as of like 24 hours ago but Nevada you guys remember Nevada. I've obviously spent a lot of time talking about them. They were a top 10 team last year. Eric Musselman, their former coach, has been on this show. Um, they fell to 2-3 and three last night. I had been critical of the Steve Alford hire when it happened. I was critical last night. I get attacked on Twitter. I got cyberbullied by a bunch of Nevada fans. They want my head on a pitchfork in Reno. But I'll tell you about what happened and really just why this Nevada thing is not going to end well. Um... You know, Steve Alford, nothing personal, but it's just not going to end well, and I'm going to put Nevada fans in their place like I tend to do with people, just like I did to the entire continent of Australia a couple months ago with RJ Hampton. I'm going to do the same to Nevada fans, and I will wrap, of course, by talking a little college football. Don't think that there's a ton to take out of the playoff picture, but I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well as the big game this weekend, Ohio State and Penn State. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody very, very, very quickly, you know the drill, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Do that on iTunes. You can do it on Podcast Addict. You can do it on Podbean, TuneIn Radio, uh, la, 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 Spotify, basically wherever you're listening to shows, that is where you're going to want to get the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Go ahead and download. Also, make sure to rate and review. Give us a quick 
five stars. Let us know that we're doing something right over here. Just like my boy Char Dunn did the other day. Char Dunn 20 said, Aaron is usually spot on with his takes, even if I don't always like them. Aaron is the man. Char Dunn, you're the man. I appreciate your support. Make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Also, if you have questions, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. As I've mentioned a ton, if you're going to be in Vegas for the CBS Sports Classic in late December, I believe the game is December 21st, we are going to be doing something there, or I want to do something there, but I want to get a feel for how many people will be there. That is, of course, the event where Kentucky plays Ohio State, North Carolina plays UCLA. If you plan on being there, let me know. I want to get a head count to know if doing something is realistic or not. Hit me up at Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Obviously, you can hit me on Twitter, Instagram, the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast Instagram page. Just let me know if you're going to be in Vegas. If not, I'm still trying to figure out if it's logical for me to get out there and for me to do something for this show. But I don't want to waste any more time, and I do want to get into right now what is the most prevalent story in college basketball, which is the news that the NCAA has officially come down on James Wise. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we've been over this so much over the past two weeks, but James Wiseman, Memphis Ford, we all know the drill. Penny Hardaway, when Penny Hardaway was a high school coach, gave James Wiseman's mother money to move him to Memphis. James Wiseman then plays for Penny Hardaway, goes to Memphis. The NCAA finds out Penny Hardaway is considered a booster because he's previously given money to school. And so James Wiseman was suspended. Memphis decided to play him anyway. They eventually sat him down. And on Wednesday afternoon, we received the news that James Wiseman will be suspended for 12 games total, but technically it's really 11 games because one of the games was served already. Memphis played on Saturday against Alcorn State. He sat that one out. So 11 more games, and James Wiseman, excuse me, will be reinstated in early January, January 12th, and will be allowed to play the rest of the season. And I'm just going to tell you point blank. Um, I'll get into like, I don't really like the move by the NCA, but I, 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 don't, I, I do get it though, because here's the deal. As I told you in a previous episode, when there is a booster violation, that's what this is, because Penny Hardaway, because he's given to the University of Memphis, is considered a booster. The standard protocol, you suspend the kid for a third of the season, which in Memphis's case would be nine games, and you make him pay back the money that is owed. And so with James Wiseman, Memphis decided to play him for three games. So instead of suspending him for nine games, the NCAA has decided to tack on an extra three games to the James Wiseman suspension. He will now serve 12, 11, uh, plus the one that he's already sat out. And this just goes back to what I told you from the beginning. It was always dumb for Memphis to fight this fight. And listen, I get it. I know everyone on Twitter is going to tell you how cool it is and screw the NCAA and F those guys and I hope James Wiseman stands up to them. But it's like I told you last episode. Memphis was never going to win this battle. And whether you like NCAA rules or whether you hate them, you know where I stand on the NCAA. I've been over these things so many times. But whether you like the rules or you hate them, you got to abide by them. And if you don't, you're going to get punished. The analogy I always use is this. Most of you guys are sitting in a car right now, or you're driving to work, or you're driving to school, or whatever. The speed limit says 55 miles an hour. If you go 58 miles an hour, a cop can pull you over and give you a ticket. It might be a dumb rule. You might not be any less safe 
driving 58 miles an hour than you would be 55. But the law is the law. The rule is the rule. And with the NCAA, the rules, you may not like them, but they are in fact rules. And so all these people on Twitter, oh, it's so cool. He's fighting them and Memphis is playing them. They were going to get punished. They did get punished. And now James Wiseman has to miss 12 games. And where the problem with it lies is that if if Memphis had done what everybody else does, which as I told you on a few episodes ago, everybody else, when they're told by the NCAA that you have a player that's very likely ineligible, everybody pulls them. And then they work with the NCAA and the NCAA gives whatever the suspension is and, the, and everybody moves on. That's what happened with Ohio State and Chase Young, to use the most recent example. Ohio State finds out there's a potential rules violation. Ohio State reports it to the NCAA. The NCAA says, look, if this is true, this kid is going to be suspended um, or he is ineligible, I would not play him. And so Memphis decided, or excuse me, Ohio State decided not to play Chase Young. They worked with the NCAA. Chase Young suspended for two games, and he gets to come back against Penn State this week. By the way, shout out to Chase Young, who basically got two weeks off against the two worst opponents, and now he comes back for Penn State and Michigan to end the year. But with Memphis, with James Wiseman, if Memphis had just done what they should have done from the beginning, if they had just said, screw it, and decided we're going to sit him when the NCAA tells us that he's not eligible, we're going to sit him, James Wiseman would have ended up with a nine-game suspension. He would have already been suspe- He would have already sat for four of those games. By the way, they, Memphis would have the exact same record. They're 3-1 and one right now. They'd be 3-1 and one without him with the only loss to Oregon. And he'd be halfway through the suspension. And guess what? By middle of December, he would be back on the court, and he would be there for some of Memphis's biggest games. By the way, Memphis, late in December, early in January, Memphis plays at the University of Tennessee. Big rival, big point of contention in the media this week as, it, as we find out that they probably will not continue this series. James Wiseman would have been eligible for that game. They also play the University of Georgia, Anthony Edwards. It was supposed to be this great matchup of Anthony Edwards versus James Wiseman, potential one versus potential number two overall pick. They instead decide to play James Wiseman. Now he's suspended for that game. Last game, Wichita State at Wichita State, a potential tournament team. James Wiseman will be back for that. And so I know it was this great, cool thing on Twitter that all the media told you, oh, it's so cool, they're fighting the NCAA. It was stupid. It was always stupid. And if Memphis had just been smart about it, if they had just played by all the rules that everybody else had played by in previous years, including Ohio State with James or with Chase Young, including... Um, whoever, Kansas with Silvio D'Souza, whatever, this would have been so much lighter. Instead, he's got to sit 12 games, and now look, it completely changes Memphis's outlook. I would add, two of their wins from earlier in the season, two wins that they would have gotten anyway against South Carolina State and Illinois Chicago, now have to be vacated. As I told you, if Memphis finishes the regular season with 25 wins, it's now going to be 23 on paper because they have to vacate two of those wins. So it was always dumb. I never understood why everybody backed it up. And it's just, you know, listen, just just don't believe the dumb media narrative. I, I know I'm turning political here and you can't trust the fake news and all that stuff, but I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you facts, okay? Everybody wants to interject their opinion. I'm telling you straight facts. Memphis should have never played him and they are being punished for it. Now, by the way, I should wrap on James Wiseman because a lot of you have asked me, um, Part of this deal is that James Wiseman has to pay back the money that he received in extra benefits, and he can donate it to a charity of his choice, but 
It is $11,000 that he got from Penny Hardaway. And the NCA, this is standard protocol, by the way. I, I see people on Twitter, oh, where's he going to get $11,000 and what a dumb thing to do. Well, it is probably pretty dumb, but this is how it's always been. And so the question that a lot of you have asked, and I think it's a totally fair question, is where is a kid going to get $11,000 when his mom needed $11,000 to move this family to Memphis in the first place? And the answer is, like I hate to say it, but if we're being perfectly honest, he's probably going to get the money from some NCA, you know, like a legal NCA thing that could, in theory, if they wanted to investigate him, get in more trouble. Like he's either going to get a loan from Penny or a loan from an agent or a loan from somewhere uh, because that's just how this works. And if we're being perfectly honest, James Wiseman probably has already begun the discussions with agents. His mom has probably begun the discussions with agents. There is probably somebody that is going to bankroll this. Maybe it'll be an executive from Nike who's going to help him out. Uh, but yeah, I don't think James Wiseman has 11,000 sitting around because uh, most college kids don't. And clearly, this is no disrespect intended on the family, but they probably don't either, considering the fact that they needed the $11,000 in the first place to move to Memphis. Uh, as far as the charities are concerned, I brought this up. As I said, James Wiseman can give the money back to any charity of his choice. How about this one? Penny Hardaway, and I tweeted this out, people loved it. Penny Hardaway, his former AAU program, it was called Team Penny, it's now called the Bluff City Legends. Um, it is technically a charity. Most AAU organizations are. They call them a, fi uh, and if I have a tax accountant listening to this show, I'd love for you to educate me because I'm not this smart, but uh, AAU programs are considered 501c3 by technicality. Again, the tax accountants, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're considered 501c3 nonprofits. And so that means that in theory, James Wiseman could write a check to Penny Hardaway's former AAU team, basically Penny giving money to James Wiseman, James Wiseman giving it back to the, to, uh, uh, the, the program that kind of uh, brought him up. I don't think he will. I don't think he wants to give more middle fingers to the NCAA, but that would be funny. And that's kind of the deal there. It does suck for James Wiseman. I get it. I get why fans are kind of saying like, dude, this is so stupid. It's unfair to the kid. I do agree it's unfair to the kid. I agree that, listen, I'm going to tell you inside information that I have. I actually think James Wiseman did not know that his family took the money to move to Memphis. That is what I have actually been told by people that I trust. And so, yeah, in a perfect world, I would like to see Penny Hardaway get suspended for a couple games. I would like to see James Wiseman not be punished for this. But these are the rules. His mom broke them. It's unfortunate, but that's the deal. All right, let's switch gears over to Kentucky really quick. Then I'm going to get to the Nevada stuff, wrap with college football, the Kentucky stuff. So Kentucky, last time we saw them was close to like a week and a half ago now. They play Evansville at Rupp Arena, and we all know what happens. Evansville wins 68-65, Kentucky loses. It's basically the first time in like 20 years that a number one ranked team in the country has lost to an unranked non-conference opponent at home. Basically, this time of year is when teams like Kentucky, and it's not just Kentucky, it's Michigan State, it's Duke, it's Seton Hall, it's Gonzaga, it's Kansas. So when you pay crappy teams to come to your building and take it on the chin. Of course, Kentucky lost that game. And then on Monday night... Of course, we all know what happened, which is that Kentucky returned to the court for the first time since Evansville. They play Utah Valley. Shout out to Mark Madsen, former LA Laker. We all have seen the dancing videos on YouTube. And Kentucky basically had to hold on for dear life in this game. 
Now, the final score of the game, if you were watching at home, was 82-74, an eight-point win. But if you actually watched it, look, it was a four-point game with a minute to go. Kentucky made foul shots late, and they held on to win what was an ugly game that they very frankly could have lost. And so when the game happened, so two things. There's there's two sides to this, right? And I'm going to kind of go with both sides. On the first side, there are the frustrated Kentucky fans who are like, dude, we suck. This team sucks. Um, we're not good at anything right now. And I kind of, right after the Utah Valley game, that was my initial reaction, right? Like my initial reaction was, I know there's injuries, but I don't really care. You're Kentucky. Tyrese Maxey's a McDonald's All-American. Nick Richards is a McDonald's All-American. Um, uh, Ashton Hagens was a top 15 recruit. The guys that you have on the court should never be in a competitive, close, one or two possession game with Utah Valley. They should never lose to Evansville. And that and that isn't not true. I know I just use like a quadruple negative. That is, that, that is true. Like you can have that opinion and I don't blame you. And that was my opinion initially after the game. And I will still stand by what I said then, which is that right now, the guys that Kentucky has on the floor, not only are not very good, but they're not doing anything at a level that makes you think that they're going to turn a corner and compete for an SEC championship, compete for a national championship. I believe that my exact words in my tweet were something to the effect of, I don't know of anything that they do at even a competent level right now, let alone an elite level. And I think that was the frustration of most Kentucky fans on Monday night. Where I would go, though, is this. What I would say is this. As critical as I was, and again, it's fair to be critical. Kentucky should never be in a game that close, that competitive with a school like Utah Valley, which has basically been D1 for like eight years now. You can't be that close. But I also think it's fair to kind of say that a couple of things. First of all, Kentucky always figures it out by March. I've said it many times. I said it on the last show with Evansville. You can't tell me that they're in worse shape today on November 21st, 2019 than they were November 21st, 2018. Because last year, when they lost that game to Duke, it just felt like the season's over. Like, like, like Duke's the best team in the country. We could play that team a thousand times and we would lose a thousand times. Well, guess what? Kentucky kept getting better. Duke never got better. They both ended up in the Elite Eight. And I hate to bring up some dark moments, but if P.J. Washington was fully healthy, they'd probably go to the Final Four, and who knows if they potentially win a national championship. As it pertains to right now, though, I don't think until I actually sat back, took a deep breath, and looked at the situation at Kentucky and realized how bad the injuries are. And the injuries are a factor that cannot be overlooked. And again, for the thousandth time in the last time, I am not excusing Kentucky for the way that they played against Utah Valley or against Evansville. But what I would also add is they got a lot of guys hurt. Okay, so let's backtrack and just go through the injuries. Dante Allen, four-star recruit, top 100 recruit. He was Mr. Basketball in the state of Kentucky. He has a torn ACL. He hasn't played at all yet this season, but he was a guy that Kentucky was counting on having when he committed and signed with the school last fall. Nick Richards hurt his ankle in the preseason. EJ Montgomery hurt his ankle sometime in the Michigan State game later, after, whatever. He hasn't played the last three games. Ashton Hagens is banged up. Emmanuel Quickly, who's probably the second best pure scorer on this team behind Tyrese Maxey, 
He didn't play on Monday night when Kentucky played Utah Valley. And so when you think about all those injuries, that's kind of insane, right? Like, like, like if Duke lost Matthew Hurt and Cassius Stanley and Wendell, uh, Wendell, not Wendell, what's his name? Vernon Carey was less than 100% and Trey Jones was less than 100%. We'd kind of be like, dude, yeah, Duke's going to struggle a little bit. And so it's the same with Kentucky, not excusing it, but I think it's just when you have that many injuries, and I know all those guys aren't getting injured at the same time, and guys are on different recovery tables, and Nick Richards is already back, and some guys are further along than others, but what it does is it just screws up everything. And this is the part, you know, you talk to coaches, you talk to people who are in basketball, I know a lot of you guys listen, coach your own teams, coach high school teams, coach your kids' teams, whatever. It's very simple, the impact that all these injuries have. I mean, the first thing and the most important thing is obviously you just don't have all your best players. And to go into battle against anybody without a lot of your best players is not easy. But then you also think about the things behind the scenes. And these are the things that you don't think about in the moment when Kentucky is playing a Utah Valley. But think about this. Kentucky right now, because of the injuries, they can't go five on five in practice. Kentucky can't get anything close to um, a rotation going from the coaching perspective. But then also the guys that are playing are being asked to play more than they were expecting, are asked to be taking on different roles than they're expecting, play more minutes, get more stats, score more, defend different positions. I mean, there's a lot of guys right now being asked to do things that nobody thought they would be able, they would be having to do a couple months ago. And so when I sit back and look at the 3,000-foot view or the 30,000-foot view, I know that there are guys like an EJ Montgomery who hasn't been great throughout his career, was not great against Michigan State. But if you tell me that guy is healthy against Evansville, I'm guessing a three-point loss turns into a one or a two or a five or a ten-point win. If you're telling me EJ Montgomery and Emmanuel Quickly are both healthy against Utah Valley, I'm guessing that it's not a four-point game with one minute to go. And so I do think that's the important part. And I think the other important part is this. We have actually seen Kentucky at full strength. It's called the Michigan State game, and they beat the number one team in the country. And guess what? It's not as though Michigan State has struggled since that game. It's not like that was a bad loss or Michigan State isn't who we thought they were. Guess what? Michigan has won. Michigan State has won every game since then. They won at Seton Hall, and they've blown everybody else out. So the one time that we have seen Kentucky on the court, they beat the team that is like definitely a, a, a top five team, and Michigan State is right up there with so many other teams right in the conversation as one of the top teams in college basketball. And so, again, I get the Kentucky fan that's frustrated. I get the fan that feels like we can't be this bad against a team like Utah Valley, but I'm also going to reserve major judgment until we see what this team looks like at full strength. And then I'd also add the good thing for Kentucky, if you're going to suffer these injuries, it did happen at the right time of the year because I looked at their schedule. Here's what Kentucky has coming up. They play Mount St. Mary's next, then Lamar. I didn't know Jackson had a, I didn't know the future NFL MVP at his own university, Lamar Jackson University. They play UAB. They play Fairleigh Dickinson. The next game they have against a Power 5 team isn't until December 14th. And the game against Ohio State, which as I mentioned is in Vegas, 
is not till December 21st. So we are talking about a full month until a big-time opponent. You do have a Power 5 team in Georgia Tech coming to Rupp Arena on the 14th. You have Utah later in that week, and you have Ohio State on the 21st. But you have a full month to figure it out with four teams that you should beat pretty convincingly. And even if you don't, just get the wins, get better, get healthy, and move on. Again, the next four games are Mount St. Mary's, Lamar, UAB, Fairleigh Dickinson, into Georgia Tech, Utah, Ohio State. And I do think in the big picture, once Kentucky gets healthy, they're going to be fine. All right, and the last little basketball topic I want to get to, and, and as I promised, we will get to football in a minute. I think it's a relatively quiet week in terms of narratives and storylines of football. So we're going to stick with one more basketball topic, and it is, uh, well, as I mentioned off the top, it's the University of Nevada Wolfpack. And I generally uh, don't talk about two and three teams at this time in the year, but basically there was a little dust up on social media, and uh, your boy got in the crosshairs again. This happens from time to time. If you'll remember, I had the whole country of Australia, the whole continent of Australia really mad at me uh, when I said that I didn't think RJ Hampton was making the right decision going to the NBL, Um, and so this happens from time to time, and right now I have all these Nevada fans mad at me simply because I'm telling the truth. And really what happens is, where it stems from is, to backtrack, what it really boils down to is what happened six, seven, eight months ago when Eric Musselman left the University of Nevada for Arkansas. I had been up to Nevada quite a few times, or a couple times, I should say. I don't even want to say quite a few. I don't want to exaggerate. I had been to Nevada a couple times. I had seen the team practice. I had seen the program up close and impersonal. And I was really impressed by everything that Eric Musselman and his staff had built at the time. And so at the time, I said, when Eric Musselman left, I said, look, I think they should hire from within. There were two former head coaches on the staff already. Uh, I referenced a guy named Gus Arginal, kind of a young assistant coach who had coached at the D2 level, admittedly did not have a ton of success, but I just thought, okay, this guy has been on the, he's been in the wars with Coach Musselman. He has uh, seen how this program is built. I think he's a natural guy to take over this program. They also had a guy, Rex Walters, on the staff who had previously been a head coach, I believe, at the University of San Francisco that was kind of working as a special assistant to Eric Musselman. And I just said, look, I think Nevada should keep this thing rolling. I think they should keep trying to build what Musselman has already built. And I don't think they should go higher from outside. And so, of course, what do they do? They do the exact opposite. They hire from outside and they bring in Steve Alford. And listen, If there's one person, honestly, and this isn't me being arrogant, this isn't me trying to sound like I'm some uh, genius, but but if there's one person that probably knows a little bit about this situation, it's me. I've been in Nevada a bunch, and oh, by the way, uh, I covered Steve Alford for five years when he was at UCLA. I like the guy. To be abundantly clear, he is a really nice guy. He's always treated me with respect. This is not a personal attack on him, but I just never thought he was the right fit for the University of Nevada. And so to bring it full circle back to Tuesday night, uh, Nevada was playing. They lost 91-71 to to Davidson, the same Davidson team, by the way, that is already lost two games, one to Auburn, one to the University of Charlotte. And with the loss, Nevada fell to three and three. Now keep in mind this team went 29 and five last year under Eric Musselman. Now admittedly they lost all five starters, they lost a bunch of other guys, et cetera, et cetera. But they fall to 20 they, they fall to two and three. And you know AT, you know your boy. Um I went on Twitter and I kind of just told it like it was. And so this is what I tweeted. I said Nevada loses 91 to 71 at Davidson to fall to two and three on the year. Last spring, Nevada fans crushed me because I said that Steve Alford wasn't the answer and they should hire internally. 
And then I did the AT thing, and I, I can't lie. I probably shouldn't have done this, but I said, if I wasn't so humble, right now I'd probably say, I told you so. But I am humble, so I won't. Nostra Torres. Um, as you can imagine, that did not go over well with Nevada fans, and they basically have spent the last 36 hours crushing me, calling me names, calling me a suck-up to Eric Musselman, all those things. And so I want to kind of just get my version of the story off my chest and defend my version, and then we'll call a spade a spade. And frankly, I'll probably never talk about Nevada again on this show because I don't think things are ever going to get better under Steve Alford. But to backtrack, it goes back to very much what I said in the spring. And this had nothing to do with Eric Musselman. This had nothing to do with the fact that I I knew him, that he's been on this show, um, that you know, if you want to call he and I close, that's fine. I don't know if we're close or not. To be honest, there's a lot of coaches that I'm a lot closer with than Eric Musselman. It just so happens that he's been on this podcast many times. And when I brought up the conversation about Nevada, it was never about, um, you know, making Eric Musselman look good or making his assistants look good or trying to do my buddy a favor uh, that was already on his staff. Because here's the bottom line. This is what people don't know. I don't talk about my relationships publicly with head coaches and assistant coaches. I have buddies that are head coaches that wanted that job. So why am I going to go to bat for somebody unless I really believe that they are the best candidate for this that job? And so this goes back to, I think, the reason that so many of you guys listen to this show and like this show. I tell it 100% the way that it is all the time even if I know the truth, is going to hurt my audience. Listen, earlier in the show, I had some not nice things to say about the University of Kentucky. It would behoove me. It would do me better to just kiss Kentucky's ass all the time, but I don't do that, and that's why Kentucky fans love listening to this show, because when Kentucky's not looking good, I'm going to call a spade a spade. When Kentucky's looking good, I'm going to call a spade a spade as well. When Louisville is playing well, I'm going to say nice things, even though they're Kentucky's rival. Like, I tell the truth all the time, and sometimes the truth hurts, and sometimes the truth gets me in trouble. And so me going to bat or saying publicly that I thought that the University of Nevada should not hire Steve Alford and should stay within, it was not about me wanting you know, to, to get my buddy in there because as I said, I had other buddies that wanted the job. It's because I truly believe that it was the best situation. And if you think about it on a very practical level, I don't know why Nevada fans would even argue with me on that point. Let me tell you why. Because think about it from Nevada's perspective. You are coming off probably the best three-year run in program history, certainly in the modern era. As I mentioned, an average of 30 wins per year, three straight Mountain West titles. And so by, by not hiring from within, what you're essentially doing is just blowing it up and starting all over again. Now, now put aside, if you're a Nevada fan listening, if you're just a college basketball fan, just think about this logically. Why would you want to blow up the most successful run that your program has had over the last 50 years or 100 years since you've been playing basketball. It makes no sense. Not only does it make no, make no just, just think about it logically, okay? Let's just, like, like, let me just give you a real-world example. Let's say Nike is coming off the best three years in the history of the company and the CEO of the company decides to step down. Do you think Nike is going to go out and hire the lead from a, from Google, who was just fired as CEO from Google because Google is in the tank, because Google's had two of the worst years in recent history? That'd be insane. Why would Nike do that? It makes no sense. What does make sense is to hire from within to continue to build Nike from where it is. And so that's essentially what I was saying with Nevada. Listen, I can't sit there and tell you that the guys that I recommended, the two assistant coaches that, are, that were on staff, 
were going to continue the success that Nevada was having. I can't promise you that. What I can tell you is this, though. When you have a winning formula, when you have success, by the way, when Nevada had created this brand where they are one of the biggest, coolest, most unique stories in college basketball, I mean, listen, Nevada had higher attendance last year than any Pac-12 team except the University of Arizona. Think about that for a second. The University of Nevada had the highest attendance on the West Coast of any program other than the University of Arizona. Two capacity in terms of the number of seats available versus the number of seats sold, they had the highest capacity in all of uh, on the entire West Coast. So they had built this incredible brand. They had built this incredible foundation. And so, no, I cannot promise that if if um, Nevada had hired from within, that it would have been maintained. But I can tell you this: two things. One, I don't get why you would want to not try and maintain that, right? And the example that I used at the time and the example I'll use now is Gonzaga. In 1999, Gonzaga went to the Elite Eight. They lost to my UConn Huskies, okay? Gonzaga then, their head coach, Dan Munson, decided to leave for Minnesota. At that time, Gonzaga had the two choices that Nevada had last spring. They can hire the biggest name with the most, you know, the most flash, which is obviously in, in the case of Nevada, Steve Alford, or they could continue to try and build what they had already been building. Gonzaga decided to do that. They decided to hire some guy named Mark Few. Mark Few, and no disrespect to him, but he was a nobody when Gonzaga hired him. And I'm sure there was a big portion of the Gonzaga fan base that said, we just had the best run in the history of the school in the NCAA tournament. We can go get an established coach. Let's go do that. Gonzaga does the opposite. 20 years later, Gonzaga is, I would say, one of the four, five, six most successful programs in all college basketball. I can't tell you that Nevada could have, would have done that. I can tell you it's at least a possibility. You know when it's not going to be a possibility, though? When you go out and get a guy who has no affiliation with the school at all. And to be abundantly clear, when I sent out this tweet, and I want to make this clear, this isn't a personal attack on Steve Alford. Like I said, I went to a lot of his practices. I've had a lot of closed-door interviews with him. He's helped me with a lot of stories I've worked on through the years. This is not an attack on Steve Alford. What this is, is that Nevada had a special chance to continue to build something, and they chose to go the opposite. And then they chose to go the opposite with a guy who is the opposite of what made them so cool. And I'm not criticizing Steve Alford, but he's just not the same guy as Eric Musselman. Eric Musselman turned this into a brand. Eric Musselman turned this into some must-watch stuff in Reno every single night. Now you watch him, and not only are they not good, but guess what? The, the, the arena isn't even close to full, even though they've had two Pac-12 programs in in the last two weeks. The crowd isn't the same as it once was. And so you can slowly see what I told you was going to happen is happening. And then on top of that, the team isn't very good. Now, I will defend Steve Alford in a couple places. One, first of all, Nevada lost all five starters from last year. It happens. It sucks. I get it. They also lost Jordan Brown, the big-time transfer who's considering a bunch of schools, Kentucky, Ohio State, he ends up at Arizona. Those are things that are out of Steve Alford's control. But I'll also tell you, you know what's in Steve Alford's control? Getting the guys that he does have to play to maximum effort and maximum capacity. And what we are seeing at Nevada right now is the same thing that we saw at UCLA at the end of Steve Alford's era. This is not uh, me attacking Steve Alford. These are facts. 
Steve Alford's team stopped playing defense at the end at UCLA. They really stopped playing defense altogether. I mean, even the year they had Lonzo Ball and all those guys, they were trying to outscore everybody and couldn't get stops. Well, guess what? I watched the Nevada game against USC a couple weeks ago, or excuse me, last Saturday. Nevada lost by 10, but if you watch that game, it was one of the worst defensive efforts that I have seen. It is the worst defensive effort that I have seen all year. USC got whatever they wanted at the rim. Nevada guys are getting lost, and let's be honest. One of Nevada's best players, Jazz Johnson, had two separate four-point plays. Two separate four-point plays, meaning he hit a three, got fouled, went to the foul line, made the foul shot. That's eight points right there. You just take out those two dumb four-point plays, Nevada loses that game by 20. They go on to lose on Wednesday by or Tuesday night at Davidson by 20. And so what this just comes down to for me, the only reason I tweeted it was kind of like, I was kind of like, dude, I told you this was going to happen. I told you it wasn't going to be pretty with Steve Alford. I told, like, like I told you, and I get it. I can't promise that if the program had done what I told them to do, which is stick with the guys within the program, that things would be better right now. I can't imagine that they'd be much worse though. And here's my question. What is the reason to believe that it's going to get better because of this fact? You gave Steve Alford a 10-year contract, which basically means, and, and listen, all I'll say is this. I'm not going to get into the nuance of it, but what I will tell you is that that contract was universally mocked by everyone in the basketball world when it was given out. Because Steve Alford, no disrespect, these are facts. Steve Alford had nowhere else to go. It was the end of the coaching cycle. Nobody really wanted the guy. He had just gotten fired at UCLA. Basically had one really good year in six at UCLA. And look, UCLA is a t- harder job than people realize. But Mick Cronin, as we speak, is 4-0. So it's not as though uh, you know Steve Alford uh, had a cupboard bear or anything like that. He just wasn't very good. And so they gave him a 10-year contract, which as best I can tell, is the second longest contract in college basketball on paper behind John Calipari right now. And now Steve Alford is going to build it, tear it down and build it back up. And this is my whole point, and I'll get off this subject. But it's like, dude, I don't understand. I just don't understand. This is what I don't understand. And then I'm going to get off the subject because I know most of you guys don't care this much about Nevada basketball. Why are you, you have a program that just won 29 games last year, an average of 30 games over the last three years. Why are you even trying to tear it down? Why are you not trying to at the very least maintain it, if not rebuild it? And the argument that I made at the time was here is the downside, here's the upside to doing that. If you go with the coaching staff that was in place, you're going to basically keep most of the team intact. And to Steve Alford's credit, most of the key players did come back. And if it, you're going to get whoever's the coach at, at discount rate, you can pay better assistance, you can put more money back into the program, all these things. And if it doesn't work out, guess what? Guess what? You fire that guy in three years and you go get that the, the next version of Steve Alford. Because here's the bottom line. There is always going to be a recently fired Power 5 head coach looking for one last shot, which is essentially what Steve Alford did is. And so to me, now I'm just rambling. Now I'm just I'm just fired up because it's like, dude, I'm getting attacked by all these Nevada fans. It's like, dude, the proof's right in front of you. This isn't that hard. You're two and three. You're averaging 30 wins a year. You've lost two combined games in the last two years at home, and you've already lost two with Steve Alford. Whatever. You're going to defend your coach no matter what, but I'm just telling you, 
I'm a humble guy, so I'm not trying to tell you what you should and should not be thinking, but if I was a Nevada fan that had three straight Mountain West regular season championships and a Sweet 16 appearance, I'd be pissed that we didn't continue to try to grow that and instead tore it down and we're two and three right now. I know five games is early to go after a coach or, or use it as a sample size, but listen, it's clear that if you watch that team, they don't play with the same edge. It's clear that if you watch that team, um, they are not the same. And maybe Steve Alford turns around. And maybe I look like a knucklehead. And maybe in two years, I'll have Nevada fans chirping at me because they're back at the top of the Mountain West. They're in the Sweet 16. But right now, I just don't see it. And I got I to gotta, I gotta tell you what the truth is. And the truth is, Nevada isn't very good right now. Steve Alford has this team two and three. They look a lot like the UCLA team that stopped playing defense last year that ultimately got him fired. And I just don't believe that he is the kind of guy that is going to make it better. All right, let's move on to some football. All right, and there really isn't all that much new to do with football, which is why I didn't really want to lead the show with football. I know traditionally this time of year, football is the bigger topic. I just didn't feel like there was that much to really discuss because here's the bottom line. The college football playoff rankings, the top seven from last week have stayed the same. LSU remained at number one despite that ugly game against Ole Miss. Ohio State at number two, Clemson three, Georgia four, Bama five, Oregon six, Utah seven. Right now, those feel like the real playoff contenders. Penn State is eight, but Penn State plays Ohio State this weekend, which we'll get into in a second. Obviously, if Penn State wins that game, they're right back in the mix and we will talk about them appropriately. But I do not believe, spoiler alert, hate to ruin the last five minutes of the show, don't know that I believe that they are going to beat uh, Ohio State this weekend, advance to the Big Ten Championship game. Oklahoma at 9, okay, they're in the conversation. Minnesota at 10. Minnesota, same deal. If you beat Wisconsin, if you go to the Big Ten Championship game, you beat Ohio State or Penn State, you're going to the college football playoff. We don't really need to talk about you. The top seven is where it's interesting, though. And, and the interesting conversation, and it's something we've really talked about here over the past two or three weeks, is what happens with the fourth spot if Georgia loses the SEC Championship game. So Georgia is number four. And as I explained on the last episode, this is pretty cut and dry. Georgia is the real inflection point of this playoff because Georgia, if they beat LSU in the SEC championship game, they will make the playoff. You're not going to leave out a 12-1 SEC champ Georgia that just beat LSU, which was the number one team in the country, beat Florida, which is a top, they're a number 11 right now, so a top 10-ish team. You're not going to leave that team out, and then LSU would get in as well. So we'd probably have Georgia and LSU both make the playoff. And then, of course, if Georgia loses the SEC championship game, they're just out of the picture. So Georgia's the real inflection point. But let's, for the sake of argument, assume that Georgia loses to LSU and knocks them out. And the question and kind of the interesting conversation becomes Bama at number five and Oregon at number six. This has really been the conversation the last couple weeks, but it obviously took an insane turn over the past weekend when Tua Tagovailoa was knocked out against Mississippi State and, of course, knocked out for the season. And now Alabama is playing at less than 100%. Without Tua Tagovailoa, Mac Jones is going to come in. He will be the starting quarterback going forward. And, of course, it's going to come down to a game in two weeks against Auburn. And so, like, yeah, there are other teams that can make the playoff. Maybe Penn State gets back in. Maybe Minnesota gets back in. Oklahoma, I think, at this point would have to win pretty convincingly going forward to find themselves in the conversation. We will get to Oklahoma in a second. But really, where I think everyone is caught up right now 
is at number five and number six, Alabama and Oregon. Because there is obviously the big potential kind of, to use a term that our buddy Tim Brando, friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast uses, the fly in the ointment is what happens if Alabama beats Auburn, what happens if Oregon wins the Pac-12 championship game, because the big thing, which I've talked about on the show since August, is that as you guys know, Oregon lost to Auburn. Alabama, in theory, would beat Auburn. And what do you do if you're down to two teams, one's the conference champion, Oregon, but they have a loss to Auburn? And what about Alabama having a win against Auburn on their resume? And so it's, it's turned into this big talking point, but I'm going to ruin the suspense. If that scenario plays out, if Oregon were to beat a good Utah team in the Pac-12 championship game, we're not even talking about Utah, who's awesome. But let's, for the sake of this conversation, because I do topics on this show, I don't live in Never Never Land, and the interesting topic, the interesting conversation is what happens if Oregon wins out, Alabama wins out. Well, you can't, you know, and, and if you if you go on social media, if you, you, you listen to people on social media, well, you can't put in uh, Alabama would have a head-to-head win over Auburn and Oregon lost, so you got to put in Alabama. I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is actually the exact opposite. If that scenario happens, if Oregon finishes 12-1 and with the Pac-12 championship and Utah is 11-1 and going in the championship game and Alabama beats Auburn, I can tell you with almost 99% certainty that Oregon, not Alabama, will get in. And let me explain why. First of all, don't get caught up with the the rankings right now. It doesn't matter. The rankings are a week-to-week deal. And to the credit of the committee, they are a week-to-week deal based on the information that we have. So just as an example, Ohio State was number one a few weeks ago. Then LSU went on the road, beat Alabama, and LSU jumped Ohio State, even though Ohio State won that weekend. Guess what? Ohio State wins convincingly at Penn State this weekend. LSU has another stinker defensively. Ohio State may move back up to number one in the playoff poll. So don't worry about Alabama because Alabama being number five and Oregon being number six has no impact on where things could be at the end of the year. I'll tell you this. I'll make a prediction right now. Oregon plays a pretty decent Arizona State team on the road this weekend. Alabama plays a cupcake in Western Carolina. It wouldn't shock me if Al- no matter what happens to Alabama, if Oregon wins convincingly, if Alab- if Oregon jumps Alabama next week to number five, and if Alabama falls to number six, then if Alabama wins the Iron Bowl, it wouldn't surprise me if Alabama then jumps back up to number five going into the conference championship games. And everybody would say, oh, they do this to create chaos and they want ratings. And it's like, no, what, what the committee is doing is basing everything based on what we've actually seen on the field. The one thing I'll give the committee credit for is they do not, like I said, like I just said about myself, I don't live in Never Never Land, and the committee doesn't either. So just as an example, the committee did not drop Alabama this week, assuming that they're not going to look good without Mac Jones because of the fact that they haven't seen Alabama with Mac Jones. And so they're not going to, they're not going to pretend to know what Alabama could look like if they don't actually know. But here is the problem. And here is why I am not convinced that if Alabama wins and Oregon loses, or excuse me, if Alabama beats Auburn, I've said it so many times, I don't know why I'm tripping up on it. If Alabama beats Oregon, if, if Alabama beats Auburn 
and Oregon wins the Pac-12 championship game. Let me tell you why this is a done deal and Oregon is going to go to the college football playoff. Under the bylaws of the, like how they pick the teams is very simple. So there have been times where a, a team that hasn't won a conference, so Alabama would be a not a conference champion in this scenario. There have been times where a non-conference champion has gotten in over a team or two or three that has won a conference championship. Heck, it happened, what, two years ago? Alabama gets in over Ohio State. Alabama didn't win the SEC. Georgia did. They end up playing each other in the national championship game. Ohio State gets left out as a Big Ten champion. But here is the catch. According to the NCAA by not NCAA, according to the college football playoff bylaws, according to how they pick teams, for a team to be selected as a non-champion, it's not just up for debate who's better. According to the bylaws, here's the exact quote. Under the circumstances where that particular non-champion, the non-champion has to be unequivocally better than the conference champion. That's the word that you have to know right there. It's the number one rule in these bylaws. The team that you pick, if you're going to take a team that didn't win a conference championship, they have to be unequivocally better than the team that you're leaving out. And I just think it's going to be really hard for Alabama, if Oregon wins out, to claim that they're unequivocally better. And let me tell you why. First of all, Oregon would be the Pac-12 champion. Oregon would have a better win than anything Alabama has on their resume, which would be a head-to-head win over Utah, which would be a top 10 team at that time. Oregon right now is in position to have a second top 25 win if USC wins this weekend. USC's final game of the regular season is this weekend, and if they win this game, USC will stay in the top 25. It will count as a top 25 win for Oregon. To take it a step further, um, Alabama, their best win would be over a four-loss Auburn team. Now, I get the argument that Alabama would have the win over Auburn and Oregon would have the loss, but let's go back to that first game. It's a game that I've talked about so much on this show, and what I tell you is this. Oregon basically lost that game on a Hail Mary in the final seconds. Nine seconds to go, Bo Nix drops back, throws a Hail Mary, touchdown, nine seconds left. It was the first lead that Oregon or Auburn had the entire game against Oregon. That's important. Oregon wasn't dominated. They weren't controlled. They weren't. They didn't get their butt kicked up and down the field. They were winning the game, the entire game, until there were nine seconds left. So yes, Alabama would have a head-to-head win. Yes, Oregon would have a head-to-head loss to Auburn. But was the loss that bad for Oregon? And is the win going to be that good for Alabama? Because that's the thing. We're talking unequivocal, okay? And when we're talking unequivocal, that is a large, that is a large, how do I put it? It's a large kind of overarching thing that Alabama is going to live up to, right? That is a large standard to live up to. To be unequivocally better than Oregon, they are going to have to kick some major Auburn butt. I don't know I don't know what the final score would be. I don't know if it'd be 42 to 3 or 63 to 14. They would have to dominate that game. And not only would they have to dominate that game. They would have to dominate that game so much that we're still talking about it a week later because remember Alabama's going to be sitting home the week of the conference championships. And so if Oregon even plays half decent against a good Utah team, 
we're going to be talking about how good Oregon is. And, and Alabama's already, to use a term from golf, they're going to be in the clubhouse. And so the standard for Alabama to reach unequivocally better than Oregon is so high. And I would argue it's going to be high for them to top Utah if Utah wins that game. It's going to be high to top Oklahoma if Oklahoma wins out. If Oklahoma wins out, if they finish at 12-1, and win the Big 12, let's say they beat Baylor twice, can you unequivocally tell me that Alabama's better than Oklahoma? You can argue it, but is it unequivocal, especially now that we know that Alabama isn't close to 100% with Tua Tonga Viola? Now you can argue, look, Ohio State did it the first year of the playoff. Cardale Jones came out of nowhere. Ohio State dominated. Ohio State in that game, first of all, it was the final game of the day. They had the stage to themselves. Cardale Jones was incredible. And Ohio State did look like one of the four best teams, and they proved to be because they won the national championship. But beyond that, Ohio State was also a conference champion. The teams they were competing with that year, TCU and Baylor, were not conference champions. And so I'm just telling you right now, Alabama, their work is cut out for them. And I'll tell you really quick, everyone's worried about Alabama versus Oregon, five versus six. I actually, you know what I really think? I think that last day of the season, we're going to be arguing Pac-12 champ versus Oklahoma more than we will Alabama. All right, last thing. All right, I want to wrap with what I said. As I've said, it's the only big game. It's it's the biggest game of the weekend. It is Penn State at Ohio State, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. I don't do game previews on this show. I do topics. X's and O's, game previews aren't boring. But listen, as sexy as I would love to make this game sound, I'm just not sold that it's going to be all that close. And let me tell you why. First of all, Penn State's coming off um, an ugly win over Indiana at home. They won by seven. But if you watch that game, it was sloppy. They couldn't pull away the entire game against a good but not great Indiana team. It got so bad, by the way, I don't even know if you saw this. Uh, Penn State's quarterback had to delete his social media accounts because he was actually getting death threats from his own fans. His own fans are so disappointed with his play that... They're kind of sitting there saying like like saying inappropriate things, and it's nothing funny to it's nothing to make light of. It's nothing that's funny, but it's kind of the framework for where Penn State is right now. And 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 again, I'm not making light of that, but it kind of shows where they are right now. And when you look at Penn State in the bigger picture, I just think the fact that if you've really watched this team this year, last week wasn't the only close game. So first of all, one possession game against Indiana. They lost at Minnesota the week before. They've had three other games that were decided by a touchdown or less. This is Penn State now. They won by seven against Michigan in a game that Michigan basically dropped the game-tying touchdown pass in the end zone with like two minutes to go. uh, Michigan easily could have won that game. They won by five at Iowa, and they won by seven against Pittsburgh. So you're talking about now a team that is... um, that, that has played four one possession games, they could just as easily be seven and three as they are nine and one. And again, if Penn State wins, we'll talk about it on Sunday and what it means for the college football playoff picture. I just don't see it though, especially keep in mind this. It's going to be an emotional day at Ohio State. It's senior day. It's their last game before the Michigan game. Chase Young is coming back. This is a potentially historically great Ohio State team. Some are saying it's the best team in school history. You have college game day there. You have... Uh, Fox NFL or Fox Noon kickoff the 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 show with Urban Meyer and the the company that I work for Reggie Bush Matt Liner all those guys are going to be there. You have BTN Live like 
it's going to be a madhouse. It's going to be one of the best scenes in all of college football this entire season. And so listen, Penn State's been a nice story. I don't really believe that they're on the level of Ohio State. Ohio State has kicked everybody's butt, has completely dominated. The only saving grace for Penn State is that this game is coming a week before the Michigan game. And you wonder if Ohio State, if they get up, will kind of ease off the gas because they don't want to give away too much for Michigan because they want to get ready for Michigan. Because Ohio State still has three big games left on the schedule with Penn State this weekend, Michigan State, and then the Big Ten Championship game where they could potentially play Minnesota, Wisconsin, whoever, before the playoffs. So I just don't see it. I think Ohio State wins this game, and I think they win it convincingly. That's basically all I got, guys. There's going to be a lot of good football to talk about next week. There's going to be a lot of big games. Obviously, the Iron Bowl, um, you know, Clemson, South Carolina, Florida, Florida State. So we're going to have plenty of time to talk about football. But I think that's going to be all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I want to thank you for listening, especially for getting through that Nevada rant. I was pretty mad. I appreciate you guys working with me. Thank you for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to the show if you're not already. Do it on iTunes. If you have an Android, use the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to Spotify, wherever you listen to the show, you can get the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, rate and review. Give us a quick five stars. Uh, Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. Also, if you're going to be in Vegas, let me know. Um, I will hopefully be there and would love some details if we can make it happen. And then finally, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Let me know if you're going to be in Vegas. That's enough. I'm wiped out. I'm so mad. Nevada fans got me all worked up today, but I'm calm. Thank you guys for listening. Shout out to Tor Craig. I will be back on Monday. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.